Well, we're going to start a new section. <laughs> it's been a long time since we got to start a new section. We have finished poetry. We did Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Solomon. And you may notice that these books are not to scale. <laughs> Last week we whacked through most of Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon in one week. Now we're, we're done with wimpy books though. We're into major prophets here. <laughs> and, and the book of Isaiah will be on this for a few weeks. We've got five major prophets and then a bunch of minor prophets. The only difference between the size of the book. And even then, it's a little bit of a puzzle because the book of Daniel, I don't think it's, I don't think it's the biggest. Uh, if you compare to all 12 minor prophets, I think you, you might find... Hosea, for example, might be bigger than Daniel. I don't, so I don't know. I did, I'm not the one that <laughs> named him. So let's look at the, the um, time period. By the way, if any of you have lost your sheet, your timeline sheet, let me know. I've got some extras still. I'd be happy to give, give you a replacement. Um, this is from the sheet we were did when we did Kings and Chronicles. And you see, here's Isaiah's prophecy. He, he covered... From Uzziah through Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and in a little bit into Manasseh. Although I don't think it mentions that in, in verse 1, it just mentions up through Hezekiah. But look over here what was happening at the same time. You have the tail end of the northern kingdom, and then the Assyrian captivity. And so Isaiah covered while the Assyrians were still beating up on everybody. And then afterwards, when they were gone, of course, you. Well, I shouldn't say, of course, you may remember that during the time of Hezekiah, one of the major events was when the Assyrians came in and besieged Jerusalem. And it was a very close call. Obviously, it was God who, who rescued them. Uh, and, and they were left as a, they were about the only people that were left that didn't get conquered. In fact, um, here's the map of the Assyrian Empire after that. Um, Campaign, and you see, you got little old Judah there, and everything else is this humongous area called Assyrian Empire. So it really left the, the people in, in kind, of, kind of a unique situation. Um, and as you read Isaiah, the, you have to realize that some of the prophecies are before the Assyrians came in and attacked, and some of them are after. Uh, and and so that who the big enemy was tends to change as we go through the book. At the beginning of the book, the big enemy was the Assyrians. At the end, it was the Babylonians. Let me go back to that timeline. The, the Babylonians did not actually capture Judah until way down here, long after Isaiah was dead. Um, but they were a major player on the, on, on the world theater from about the time of Josiah on. Now that's still after the time of Isaiah, but the Babylonians existed at the time of Isaiah, and he predicted that they would be the ones who would take the people captive. Um, Alright, so let's look at then the, um, the outline. It's, it's a big long outline because it's a big huge book, 66 chapters. Um, I'm hoping this morning we can do the first three sections. Which said, "Well, you take us through chapter 23. That that won't get us caught up, but it'll be better than what we've been. We've been running a week behind here. Um, 
So, I don't know, any questions before we start chapter 1? Alright, then we'll look at um, chapter 1, Israel is a nation weighed down with sins. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Um, Isaiah prophesied pretty much exclusively to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, um, which at one point was almost entirely, almost entirely considered just a Jerusalem. The Assyrians had taken most everything else. Um, now he does have prophecies against other nations, but they're the nations that surround Judah. He's not prophesying to the northern kingdom telling them to repent or anything like that. This is all to the southern kingdom. They need to repent too. That I mean, of course, we get the impression as we read the book, uh, books of Kings and Chronicles, that you know all the sins were in the in the northern kingdom and the righteousness was all in the southern kingdom. But there was a, as you read these prophets, you realize there was a terrible amount of sin in the southern kingdoms, even during the reigns of good kings. And that was the other thing I forgot to talk about. Let me go back here. Um, we, the ones with question marks were good, but not all good. Isaiah was good, except what did he do that really um, <laughs> was a big mistake? He went into the temple. Yeah, he went into the temple. He was going to be a priest. And, and what happened to him as a result? Yeah, he got struck with leprosy. So he wasn't king anymore. And, and Jotham was king, even while his dad was alive. And, and Jotham was another question mark one. Ahaz, no question mark, he was bad. <laughs> through and through. And we'll, we'll have him in... This morning's lesson. Hezekiah was a good king. Um, and then Isaiah died during the reign of one of the worst kings that there was, Manasseh. Um, so he had quite a mix. But even during the reigns of the good kings, the people were still doing a lot of sins. And, and um, So the, the first chapter is going to give us the introduction to let us know what the book's really about. What are these sins we're talking about? Verse 4. Um, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Wow, that's pretty strong stuff. Um, and then in verse 9, what would they have been if the Lord hadn't left them at least a few survivors? Sodom and yeah, they'd been like Sodom and Gomorrah, which of course they were completely wiped out with fire brimstone falling from above. Um, so here he, he, he starts rebuking these people in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. <laughs> he mentioned Sodom. He calls them Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Whoa. Why doesn't God like sacrifice? I thought they was, those were commanded in the in the law. That's right. It, it, he had no objection to sacrifice. He had objections to the people who were offering the sacrifices. They thought somehow that made them fine. Um, but he says in verse thirteen, "Bring your worthless offerings no longer." I mean, he's really blasted. Well, imagine. If the Lord was speaking to us today, instead of sacrifice, He would talk, to, talk about coming to services, taking the Lord's Supper, offering money, 
And he would say, you know, why don't you just shut your church building doors? I don't want to hear anything more from you. If we were living hypocritical lives. And that's what they were doing. They were during the week they were just doing whatever they wanted. And let's see if I can find some. Yeah, look at verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice. Reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. In our lectures, we talked quite a bit about the, of justice and mercy. Um, and, and in the Old Testament, justice a lot of times had to do with taking care of the orphan and the widow. They were the, they were the helpless ones that couldn't defend themselves. And it's obvious from what God is telling these people that that's what they were lacking. They were abusing the weaker parts of the of the population so that the the powerful wealthier people could just have even more wealth. Verse 18, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. We have a song, you may recognize that, that comes from this verse. Um, but of course, in order for their sins to be turned into white as snow, they're going to have to repent. They're going to have to change their lives. And that was Isaiah's job to try to try to tell them this. All right. Anything? Questions on chapter one? All right. Chapter two. The first four verses. I've titled that "In the Last Days." Da da da. <laughs> um, in the last, it will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord, Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And, and we're familiar with with prophecies like this that are fulfilled with the establishment of the church in the New Testament. Um, the, the, this, and it's interesting. Isaiah does this a lot, where he'll jump from something that's right then and there, way into the future all the way to the church, which was over 700 years later. Um, and I think the, the reason he's doing this um, is that if God's going to do this in the future, if, if, the, if Jerusalem is going to be such a pinnacle of perfection that all the nations are coming to it, then the inhabitants of Jerusalem need to get with the program and, and live appropriate to what God intends for the city to be. And so in verse 5, I'll move forward to that. In verse 5 he says, Come house of Jacob and let us walk in the light of the Lord. If, if the Lord is going to do this with the house of the Lord, the temple there in Jerusalem, then we need to walk in that light is what Isaiah is saying. Um, but in contrast, he says in verse 8, their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. This is the first time that I think it mentions idols. And my, I, I didn't notice it in the previous chapter, but in the previous chapter, it's more talking about the injustice they were practicing. But now we find even idolatry. Um, now, they, they were still worshiping God, they still had the temple, but. In addition to that, they had their idols. Uh, they, they, were, they were kind of combining it. Um, and so, in the next section, a day of reckoning is coming. This is still chapter 2. Um, verse 12, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning, 
against everyone who is proud and lofty, and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. He talks about this quite a bit. We'll keep coming back to this idea of judgment in the book of Isaiah. That was Isaiah's job really to tell the people, unless you repent, you're going to get judged. And of course, they didn't repent. So now in chapter 3, he zooms in on one particular population. Ralph, would you do me a favor and turn the fans down? Um, If you put them down low, I'd appreciate that. Thank you. Chapter 3, all the way to the beginning of chapter... Oh no, just 3. The first 15 verses deals with the leaders of the people. Um, Of course, when when he talks about defending the the widow and the orphan, it's obvious that he's rebuking the the upper levels of society, but now he goes all the way to the top. The, the, um, the you know the the judge, the prophet, the elder, the captain of fifty people, um, and the king, and all that. And they're all going to be judged because they're just they're, they're sinful. And the judgment is in verse four. I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them. Now you may, I don't know if we talked about this much when we're doing kings, but um, the last couple of kings of Judah were very young when they became king. Um, one of them I think was like 18 years old. Um, he reigned for three months. Um, and then his uncle became king. And I, I don't know, know that his uncle was much older. Um, and they behaved like children. Just very selfish. Just... Um, the pro- in the, one of the prophets they were rebuking one of the kings for building his fancy palace and not paying the workers and then, of course a king can get away with that you know, he can just order the people you're going to do this or else and these poor people are just being ground into poverty um, so mere lads, lads as their prince that was a judgment for them because the leaders of the people were, were sinning Verse 6. <clears throat> then he's going to tell what's going to happen. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house saying, You have a cloak? You shall be our ruler and these ruins shall be, will be under your charge. <laughs> He'll protest on that day saying, I will not be your healer for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not appoint me ruler of the people. <laughs> Although that's, that's quite a switch. You know, Usually people are anxious to become king but it becomes so horrible that... <clears throat> Nobody wants to be the king of, of the disaster that gets left after God punishes them. Um, in verse 15, it's still talking about these rulers. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. <clears throat> now he switches to another group of people. Who's that in the next section? The women, yes. Now the women are not the rulers. They're the wives of the rulers. The daughters of the rulers. They're the people who are enjoying the luxurious life that the injustice of their husbands and their fathers has given them. Because the the rulers are willing to grind down the poor and take everything that belongs to them, property, whatever else, free labor, the wives are living it up in luxury. 
And, and so Isaiah describes the luxury of, of these women. Um, in verse 16, Moreover the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are proud, and walk with heads held high, and seductive eyes, and go along with mincing steps, and tingle the bangles in their feet, therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. They cannot argue that, oh, we haven't done this. Yes, they, they have. I mean, they have participated in the injustice of that society and they're, they're enjoying it. They're enjoying all the fruits of their husband's sins. And they're going to pay the price. Um, in chapter 4, verse 1, here, here after God brings His judgment in, here's what's going to happen. For seven women will take hold of one man in that day saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by Your name. Take away our reproach. So many of the men have been killed in the wars that you've got this huge outnumbering of the women to the men they all want to be married. So, so they're, all, they're trying to give the guy a, 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 this offer. You know, you don't have to pay us a thing. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll provide everything we have. You just let us be your wife. It's, I mean, it's a sad come down from what it was. Um, and in verse 3, it will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Now, he takes a different tack in chapter 5. A parable. A parable of a vineyard. Um, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Now in this parable, what does the vineyard represent? Yes, it represents the nation of Israel, or in this case, Judah. Where else in the Bible do you have a parable about a vineyard where it represents the same thing? There's a parable of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, the parable of the unrighteous uh, vineyard keepers. Yeah, that you have this guy that, that made this vineyard, and then you let it out to these guys that were going to take care of it and give the fruit of it to the owner. Well, the owner was God. The vineyard was Israel. Who were the people he rendered it out to? The leaders. Yeah. And so Jesus was telling that parable against the Pharisees, against the the, uh, scribes, against the priests, the high priest. Do you think they knew when he mentioned vineyard that he was talking about Israel? Yeah, they knew this. And see, that's that's where he was getting it from. This was a very famous parable for them. They knew the book of Isaiah. So when he told that parable and it had a little modification on it, you know, with renting it out, they knew exactly what he's talking about. In fact, uh, the, I forget which, whether it was Matthew or Mark or Luke, it says they wanted to kill him at that time because they knew he told the parable against them. <laughs> Alright, so and then down in verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant, 
Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So, and I skipped over the verse where he was going to let his, his vineyard get destroyed because it wasn't giving him the fruits that he wanted. That was that, this, the reason for it was the sin of these men of Judah. Now, we go back, and then, and then he, he, he goes into more detail with the rest of the chapter about the sins of, of Israel. In verse 8, Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. Where are they getting all these houses and fields that they're adding to their own house and field? Yeah, from poor people. They're taking advantage of injustice to steal what they have. And I'm sure they were doing it in a way that was, quote, legal. They, they could handle it in the courts if someone took them to court over it. Of course, they also mentioned bribes, so, you know, even if they weren't strictly legal, a bribe would solve the problem and they'd still get to keep all the lands and the houses. Verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. So we're looking at a luxurious people that care nothing about God, just whatever makes them feel good. Verse 13, Therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude is parched with thirst. What are they famished and thirsty for? Righteousness. Yeah, or in this passage, in fact, knowledge. They're they're thirsty for knowing what God would have them to do. Um, the whole nation just was ignorant of God. Of course, we understand they were ignorant of God because they really didn't want to know God. They were enjoying uh, the kind of life they were living, and if they knew God, you're just going to make them feel bad. <laughs> Which Isaiah, I'm sure, was not a real popular guy because. <laughs> He's just telling them things they want they don't want to hear. Verse 18, Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, Let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. That seems like an amazingly bold statement. And it's saying, Let's, let God show us what He's going to do. Now, I get the impression, I'm not certain of the context here, whether they think that God is going to hurry and rescue them from the Assyrians, or what I think is more likely, they hear Isaiah saying, you know, look guys, you're in for big trouble, God's going to judge you. And they say, oh, well tell God to bring it on. Yeah, let's let's just see what He can do. And that's kind of the impression I get from these verses. Just amazingly bold. Verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's a sad state of affairs. Um, and then in verse 24, I've got we find out where the judgment's going to come from. Israel will be judged by a distant nation. Um, in verse 26, he will also lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth, and behold, it will come with speed swiftly. What nation is he talking about here? Yeah, in the short run, it would be Assyria. Uh, Assyria certainly did a lot of damage to Judah. In the longer view, it would be what? Babylon, yes. And the way it's phrased in that that verse, it works either way. Um, 
All right, now, the last chapter in this first section of the book is this very famous Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, the, um, the vision of the Lord in the temple. We, we, we studied this chapter when we were getting ready for the book of Revelation because it's one of several throne scenes in the Old Testament. Name me some other throne scenes in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, yes. That, the chapter 1. Exodus. Moses and the elders went up to the top of the mountain and they saw the Lord sitting on His throne. Yes. So we have those three throne scenes. Those are the only ones I can think of in the Old Testament. And then you have the throne scene in Revelation uh, at, at the very beginning. I think it's um, chapter 4. Um, very, very beginning of the vision section of the book. And it, it harks back to these earlier ones. So, and and. He dates it for us in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, now that was the first king that we have listed in the first verse of the book. So now we've finished the first king, a good king for the most part. But in the year of his death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. And it goes on with you know very dramatic uh, language. And then in verse 5, I said, Woe to me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Um, in comparison with God, all of us are just, we are just incredibly filthy. And, and Isaiah feels this in the presence of God. So then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it. Good thing it's just a vision. <laughs> Behold, this has touched your lips. And your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So he's cleansed with fire from the altar. And and what does the altar represent in the New Testament? Sacrifice of Christ. Sacrifice of Christ. Yeah. So taking that coal from the altar is like having the blood of Jesus applied to us. That's what this symbolizes. So then he says, "I heard the voice of the Lord saying." Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. <laughs> Here, Isaiah is just inspired with this great vision of God and he wants to be a, a, a servant. And so God agrees and He says, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Now that's that's got to be a very puzzling passage when you read that. You think, wait a minute. I thought we wanted to rescue these people, but God is saying, no, I want you to make them where they won't hear, where they won't see, where they won't repent. And you may recall even that Jesus quoted this passage when the apostles asked Him, why are you speaking to them in parables? And He quotes from this passage right here. So so they won't understand. <laughs> um, the people had gotten beyond the point of any return. And God is now judging them by giving them preaching that He knows they will reject and that will simply increase their guilt because they, there's even more of God's words they're rejecting. And that's going to be Isaiah's job. And he says, How long, O Lord? He answered, Until cities are devastated without inhabitants. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. That doesn't sound like a fun job for, to me. 
<laughs> poor Isaiah. And he's going to preach to people and he's told in advance, they're not going to hear you. How long should I do it? Until the land's all deserted, until all these judgments come to pass. In fact, of course, Isaiah didn't even live that long, but he saw plenty of it. All right, now, um, I forget why I put this timeline in here. Oh, yes, I know why I put it in here. We're up to this guy named Ahaz as we start chapter 7. And Ahaz crossed this, time, this period of time here where the Assyrians finally took all of the northern kingdom captive in 722 B.C. at the end of Hoshea's reign. And Ahaz lived from 732 all the way to 715, so he crossed that line. He, 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 he reigned the entire time Hoshea was king and then beyond that. And, and chapter 7 takes place before the end. Hoshea is still king, so we're somewhere in this period here, the last black line on the, on the right of our timeline. Um, in our outline, we're in the second section called Emmanuel and His Kingdom. In chapter 7, I've titled The Virgin Birth. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Reason, the, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Hoshea, he was the guy before Hoshea, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported in the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Uh, the, the king of Israel doesn't know, doesn't realize it, but it's almost the end for him. But he, he and his ally, the king of Aram from Damascus, reason, they've teamed up together to try to get the southern kingdom into their alliance. And I, I believe that this is an alliance against the Assyrians. Um, this chapter seven doesn't really tell about it. But the only way they're going to get Judah into that alliance is to knock off the king. So they're going to kill Ahaz. They're going to kill the entire house of David, wipe them out, and put their own king in place. And then they'll have three nations in this alliance. And Ahaz is terrified as his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Just so scary. And Isaiah is sent to, to reassure him. And in verse 5... He says, because he's reassuring me, he says, because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, um, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach. But in verse 7, the Lord says, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Well, then in verse 10, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. It's obvious Ahaz doesn't believe what Isaiah is telling him. You know, Isaiah, Isaiah is saying, don't worry, this isn't gonna, they're not going to knock you off, it's not going to happen. Ahaz is still very worried. So God says, I'll tell you what, you name the sign and I'll do it. Can name me a time in the Old Testament when a king got to do that, got to name a sign? Hezekiah got two options, but it wasn't. Yeah, Hezekiah got to make the shadow go backwards or forwards on the steps. 
Yeah. And he picked which it was, and then it happened. And, and that reassured him. Ahaz got to pick whatever he want. You, know, you just name what you want God to do for a sign, and he'll do it. Name me someone else in the Old Testament that asked for a sign. Yeah, Gideon did. You know, I'm going to put this fleece out, and and Lord, you know, I, I want I want it to be wet everywhere else and dry in the fleece, or and vice versa. He tried, he did it both ways. What sign would you ask? I mean, what if God said to you, "Hey, pick a sign, whatever you want." What would you pick? <laughs> wow. Well, what if you picked something and God did it? What would it mean that you'd have to do? What well, God was saying for you to do, yeah. God, God only gives signs when he when he's got something major for a person to do. And for Ahaz, what that major thing was: trust me, the enemy is not going to win. Ahaz didn't want to trust God, and so he responds, "I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord." Well, what what was actually going on in his mind? He was going. He had his own plan, and he was going to solve it. He didn't need God. He was going to pay money to the king of Assyria, and the king of Assyria was going to attack those two nations, and he'd be off the hook. And that's exactly what he did. In fact, we read that in Kings. But um, Isaiah was pretty mad about this, so he says in verse thirteen, um, "Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of?" of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? God with us. And He goes on about how when the boy is still child, then the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Um, And that prophecy is quoted in the book of Matthew because ultimately the Lord did give a child to the virgin. And that child was a descendant of Ahaz. Ahaz was afraid he was going to get wiped out by these, these, these two foreign kings. But in fact, he was going to be the ancestor of the Messiah. He didn't deserve it, but that's true of a lot of ancestors of Jesus. So now, in verse 17... Isaiah turns and starts talking about Ahaz's plan. See, he's going to go hire the Assyrians. So, Isaiah says, The Lord will bring on you, on your people, on your father's house, such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. And that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle on the steep ravines on the ledges of the cliffs, on all the thorn bushes and all the watery places. And it's just going to be terrible. All because Ahaz wouldn't trust the Lord. He had his own plan. He was going to hire the Assyrians and it was going to be terrible for them as a result. Now, um, in chapter 8, we have more prophecy about the fact that Damascus and Samaria will fall. Those are the two nations trying to beat up on Ahaz. And so in chapter 8, they're going to fall um, and he still talks in verse 7 about the, the Assyrian coming in and sweeping into Judah. Um, 
In verse 19, when, you, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? This is just some of the more of the sins that were going on in Judah. But it's talking about all the terrible things that are going to happen when the Assyrians come in. He finally ends up in verse 22. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. And on that note, the next chapter says, but there will be no more gloom for who, her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So, he switches from doom and gloom to a time when there won't be the doom and gloom anymore. Now, he doesn't mention there's going to be a few hundred years in between. <laughs> But who's he predicting in chapter 9? Jesus, we have this child that's going to be born. Um, in verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Those are pretty amazing names to give to an ordinary child. <laughs> um, and he goes on about how he's going to reign on throne of David in, in verse 7. Um, and then in verse 8 he starts talking about more judgment to come on the people. And he has several sections of judgment. Each of those sections ends with the same phrase. Look at the end of verse 12. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. Or down to verse 17, at the end of that, again, in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. At the end of the chapter, the same thing. And into chapter 10, verse 4, he still ends verse 4, in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. So you have all these judgments coming on the people. So there's this promise of this child, but that's going to be a ways off yet. The people are still going to have to experience God's wrath for their sins. And then, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 10, he talks about Assyria as being God's tool. Um, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the wrath and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. How come he's saying woe to Assyria if they're God's tool? Well, after they've done the work, they're, they're going to be likewise. Yeah, and the reason for it is because they don't know they're God's tool. They think they're doing it for themselves and, and that's their attitude. And, and so God says, you're not doing it for yourselves, you're doing it for me, and because of this adage, I'm going to punish you. And so the rest of the chapter talks about what's going to happen to them because of their own pride. Um, he says in verse 12, it will be that when the Lord has completed all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, and notice the Syrians are going, to wipe, are, are, are going to wipe the slate, He will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. And then in verse 15, talking to the Assyrians, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? <laughs> the Assyrians were the axe. God was the one who was doing the chopping. But they were boasting like they, it was their doing. And then in verse 20, in that day the remnant of Israel, those of the house of Jacob who have escaped, will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Now the one who struck them was the Assyrians. And that's exactly who Ahaz was relying upon. He was relying upon the ones who were going to strike him. 
He says once, once God finishes with His judgment, they won't do that anymore. He's looking for obviously far into the future. But then in verse 22, for though your people of Israel may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined overflowing with righteousness. And then finally the chapter ends, He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. And then, that's a segue into chapter 11, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. We have this tree stump here, and a little shoot's coming out. He just finished talking about chopping down all these trees, and now there's a little tree stump little shoot coming out of the tree stump. But the tree stump is not a real tree. What's the tree stump? Jesse. Yeah, it's the family of Jesse. Who's Jesse? That's David's father. So this is the house of David that's been chopped down. There's no king reigning on the throne who's of the, of the house of David. But there's a little shoot coming out. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Who are we talking about here? Yeah, of course we're talking about Jesus. Um, and in verse 6, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will ride down, lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fattening together and the little boy will lead them. We're talking about peace like we've never known before is what's being predicted here. Um, in verse 10, then in that day the nations will result to resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. The nations are now the Gentiles that are going to come in. And then in verse 11 it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cushion, and so, so on and so forth. So a great restoration of the people God bringing them in in the days of this descendant of Jesse. And then the last one in this section um, in chapter 12 is a thanksgiving to God. Uh, in that day, you will, you will say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. And of course, this is talking about us. In verse 3, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Um, this is our psalm in, in chapter 12. Now, the next section, the last one I want to cover this morning is judgment against the nations. Um, he, he starts talking about other nations than Judah. And I'll just show you on the map the different nations he covers. I don't remember the exact order, but um, Moab is just to the east of the Dead Sea over here where Jordan is today. The Philistines are to the west on the coast. Um, Assyria is up in this area. Um, there's Nineveh, that's the capital of Assyria. Babylon is down a little bit lower, but Babylon was actually in the Assyrian kingdom when uh, Isaiah was writing. Um, Edom is south of Judah, down here. Uh, Damascus, the capital of Syria, is up north. Tyre is on the coast. Um, Egypt is down here, and Ethiopia, or Cush, is what was called Upper Egypt, upstream on the Nile. All those nations are covered in these next chapters. So first of all, we have the oracle concerning Babylon in chapter 13. And I want to just notice... Um, Verse uh, 19. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. 
It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. Now, you have to understand that this is not the normal prophecy for a, a city that's going to be destroyed. Because a lot of the cities back then that were prophesied against were later on inhabited again. But I want to show you a picture of Babylon. Here's what it looks like today. Pharaoh Jenkins took that picture. That's, that's Babylon. What nation is that in today? Iraq. That's right. Um, here's another view. It's black and white. This picture was taken back in 1932. Um, it shows you a lot of the ruins. You can see, wow, that, that, at one time that was an amazing city. I mean, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, built that city up. But nobody lives there now. It, it, it's just like this predicted. Saddam Hussein, because he was going to rebuild Babylon, he yeah. thought of himself as yeah. Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, that didn't work out so well, did it? <laughs> um, another thing about this prophecy that is it's amazing is that it didn't get fulfilled for over a thousand years. Now, Isaiah was writing in 700 B.C. Now, Babylon certainly was taken before this. Babylon was conquered by Cyrus, um, the, king, uh, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. And that was um, around 520 B.C. You know, only a couple hundred years or so after Isaiah wrote. But he used it for his capital. He didn't wipe it out. I mean, he didn't make it where, you know, Shepherds aren't going to tend their, you know, put their sheep there. In the days of Jesus, there were still people living in Babylon. Um, they can Babylon was a much smaller city at the time, but they were still living there. It wasn't until 641 when the when the uh, Muslims conquered the whole area that Babylon started really going down, and no one knows exactly, you know, who turned out the lights at the very end. But sometime after 641, it was abandoned. And this is what it is today. It's predicted in 700 B.C. So then in chapter 14, Israel has a taunt against Babylon. Um, and in verse 4, How the oppressor has ceased, and how fury has ceased. They're so happy you know Babylon's been judged. You can understand why. I'm just going to move forward. I'm not going to look at specific verses here, but uh, chapter 14, we have judgments on Assyria and Philistia, two of those nations I showed you on the map. Chapter 15 and 16, judgment on the, on the nation of Moab. Um, chapter 17, uh, judgment on Damascus. Chapter 18, Ethiopia, Upper, upper Egypt. 19, Egypt. 20, Prophecy against both Egypt and Ethiopia. Uh, chapter 21, oracles concerning Babylon, Edom, and Arabia. I didn't show you Arabia, but it was east in the desert. Um, and then in chapter 22, the oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. Um, and that one is actually against Jerusalem. In the middle of all these others, it's, they get Jerusalem in. Um, what is the matter with you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? You who are full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city. Your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. And he's, he's projecting himself to the future and looking at the disaster to come on Jerusalem. 
In verse 12, Therefore in that day the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, and to wearing sackcloth. Instead, what did they do? There is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. And the whole chapter is really talking about judgment on them. And it's a very interesting literary device because he's covering all these other nations all around and then he drops one on them. You're part of this too. And then finally, the last one in this section is the oracle concerning Tyre in chapter 23. Tyre was their enemy to the north. Um, one of the two major cities of the, of the Phoenicians. Any questions? Comments? Alright, I appreciate everyone's help this morning.